tonight is a continuation in our series of studies in the book of Romans, and tonight is Romans 8, which is the peak of the book. So we are going to get through part of chapter 8 tonight. I'm sure we won't do all of it. Before we do that, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, and we'll get started with our study. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here in the middle of the week to study your word and to pray together. And we pray now that your spirit would bless us as we study this important chapter of Romans 8. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans 8 is the last chapter in Paul's theological exposition of the gospel before he transitions into practical applications of the gospel. And so when we get to chapter 8, Paul starts to make a lot of connections from earlier in the book. And these connections are very powerful, and it's sort of like the, he saved the best for last. So this is what we're going to study tonight. Last week, we finished up Romans 7, and by way of review, starting in verse 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. When you are carnal, sold under sin, that means you are a slave. If you are sold under something, you are a slave to that. And when you are a slave, you are forced to do things. I mean, this is just in the human world. When you are a slave, you do things that you don't want to do, and you don't do things that you want to do. Think about the slaves in the bad part of our American history who, instead of getting to have freedom and make their own choices and live their own lives, were forced to do what their masters told them to do. And in Romans 7, the experience uh, of being carnal, sold under sin, is doing that which you don't want to do and not doing what you want to do. And if you are sold under sin, that means you are are a slave or a servant to sin, which Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. And then it makes sense when in verse 17 and again in verse 20, Paul says, It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me, because sin is your master. You are a servant to it. Um, And then we saw in Verse 24, Paul says, O wretched man that I am. And the only other place that the word wretched is found in the Bible, it's the Greek word talahiparos, is Revelation 3 to describe the Laodicean experience. And Laodicea is not only wretched, but they're miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And because they're naked, that means they're not covered with the righteousness of Christ. And if you're not covered with the righteousness of Christ, you're clearly not justified. So if you have the experience of of doing the things you don't want to do and not doing the things you want to do, that's being carnal, sold under sin, which means you are a servant or a slave to sin. And it means you're wretched. And it means that you have the experience of the Laodicean church, which Christ says he wants to spew out of his mouth. So that's a brief review of what we studied last week. 
So when you come to the end of Romans 7, Paul is showing this is what it means to be a servant to sin. In Romans chapter 6, he shows this is what it means to be a servant to God. What does it mean to be a servant to God? To be dead to sin, to be crucified with Christ. And in Romans 6 verse 7, those who are dead to sin are justified because the marginal reading for freed from sin is justified. So bottom line, Romans 6 being dead to sin is the experience of justification. Romans 7 being a servant to sin or a slave to sin or being carnal means that you're not justified. And we've talked about this before, but yet many Christians and even Adventists teach that Romans 7 is the Christian experience on your way to heaven. But yet Paul is saying, no, you're carnal, sold under sin, and you're wretched. And if you're sold under sin, you're a servant to sin. And if you're a servant to sin, you're not justified. And if you're not justified, you're not saved. So the bottom line is, Romans 7 is the experience of someone who is not saved. So don't let anyone tell you that Romans 7 shows us that we have an excuse to keep sinning till Jesus comes, because it clearly doesn't teach that. So then we come to the end of Romans 7, and Paul then makes his summary statement of the first seven chapters. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This is a very, very significant verse. And if you notice what Paul does here, and if you have the King James, the two words there is, those two words are supplied. So the first word really is therefore. So he's summarizing the first seven chapters. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And I might add that many of our modern translations leave out the second half of verse 1 and just say there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus and leave out the part that says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And that second part belongs in the verse. How do I know that? Well, if you go to verse 4, it says the same thing. Second half of verse 4 says, Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So let's talk about this. And we can get into a whole discussion about the received text versus the, the other line of manuscripts. And in the, the text, this receptus, Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, is always there. That's the Protestant manuscript line. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, verse 1 clearly explains. It's those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But let's look at a couple of other Bible verses to consider what it means to be in Christ Jesus. And before we do that, let's consider what Paul is saying here. He is saying there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now if you remember where we've come from in the book of Romans, by the time we get to Romans 3, Paul has proved that whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you know about God or you don't know about God, all of the world is guilty before God because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, 
without Christ, all we deserve is condemnation. And yet, when you get to Romans 8, verse 1, the good news of the gospel is there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And so, from going from the point of like, wow, I've sinned and come short of the glory of God, I deserve condemnation and the judgment, to realizing, hey, to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, there's no condemnation. This should be a cause of great rejoicing to the believers. Those who are reading this letter for the first time, they're seeing what Paul is saying, and then they get to chapter 8, verse 1, and they're like, wow, there's no condemnation. So what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, in verse 1 it says, it's those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. What does it mean to walk after the flesh? Romans 7 shows us what that is being carnal, sold under sin, not doing the things we want to do and doing the things we don't want to do. And Romans 8 is going to show us what it means to walk after the Spirit. But let's look at a couple of other verses that talk about what it means to be in Christ Jesus. And I want to go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is the famous chapter of Christ's prayer the night before he died. Now it's interesting when you get to John 17 verse 2 Jesus in his prayer to the Father says you have given me power over all flesh. So Jesus' life proved that he had power over the flesh and those who are in Christ Jesus walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But furthermore, in John chapter 17, verse 21, this is where we are going to make a connection to what it means for us to be in Christ Jesus. John chapter 17, verse 21. Jesus says that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So notice the subject matter here. Christ has been praying for his disciples in chapter 17, and then he also prays for those who will believe on him, who come after his, his disciples. And then in verse 21 he says, that they, his disciples and all those who shall believe on God through the witness of his disciples, which would include us, because we read the witness of the disciples to this day in the Gospels. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. So notice this. The relationship between the Father... This is not... <clears throat> the relationship between the Father and the Son is that the Father is in the Son... And the Son is in the Father. So Jesus says, so he's praying for unity, that we may all be one. As, and, and how does that unity come? Well, here's the example. 
the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. Do you see that? So then he goes on to say that they also may be one in us. So now, here's us. It's the word they in John 17. Who is the they? It's, if you look at John 17, it's, the, it's the, the disciples that Jesus is praying for, and also all those who shall believe on Christ through the word of the disciples, which could include anyone down to the close of time. So what is he praying for? That just as the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, that we, or they, would be in the Father and the Son. Now, <clears throat> Again, in verse 21, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So, the believers that Christ is praying for, he is praying that they may be one in the Father and in the Son. And that is comparable to the Father being in the Son and the Son being in the Father. Now, what's the significance of this? <clears throat> when Jesus lived here on this earth, the Father lived in him and through him. And if you look in John chapter 5, Jesus says, I can of, my own, of mine own self do nothing. And so the Father was in him, and the Son was so connected to the Father that the Son was also in the Father. And then you go to verse 23, it says, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. So not only this, not only are we to be in the Father and the Son, but the Son is to be in us as the Father is in the Son. You see that? So if you diagram it out, the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in us, and we are in them. That's what it means to be one with the Father and the Son. So we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. The Father was in Christ, and Christ was also in the Father. You see that? So the Father was in the Son, and the Son was in the Father. And Jesus is saying, I in them, and it also says that we will be in them. And so when we get to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to say, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, it means that just as the Father was in the Son, and the Son was in the Father, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. So, to no longer be under condemnation, we need to have the experience of being in Christ, and Christ being in us. And we've already talked about this in the book of Romans. Now it's interesting, if you go on down in John 17, it says, I in, verse 23, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, 
and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. It's the second time Jesus says that the world may know that thou hast sent me. Why is it that so often people don't know we are Christians? Could it be because we are not in Christ Jesus? And Christ is not in us. And so the world doesn't see any difference in us. But if the Father is in Christ and Christ is in us and we are in Christ, the world will know. It's interesting, if you go to verse 24, Jesus says, Father, in his prayer, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. That prayer will be fulfilled at the second coming. Because... As best as we know, none of the disciples are with Jesus now. And so when that prayer is answered that we are one with Christ and one with each other, then we can see Jesus come. But we won't spend time on that concept right now. Romans chapter 8, going back to chapter 8 then, says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means for us to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us, just as the Father was in Christ, and Christ was in the Father. So those who have that experience, there is therefore now no condemnation. And when you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, it only makes sense that you would walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Because if you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, you're going to walk according to the Spirit of God. Because Christ is now in control of your life. Now, continuing on in verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, there's two laws that Paul is talking about here. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus and the law of sin and death. So... The law that Christ gives us brings life. The law that sin brings us, or what, you know, the law of sin brings us death. So if you go back to Romans 6, when we look at the concept of life, we see in Romans 6 verse 4, that Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we can also walk in newness of life. And then it goes on to talk about how death has no more dominion over Christ, and sin has no more dominion over us. That's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The law of sin and death we see later in the chapter when we see that the wages of sin is death. So, according to the law of sin, if you sin, you die. That's the law of sin and death. Pretty straightforward. Now, verses 3 and 4 are very important, and we're going to spend some time on these two verses. Starting in verse 3, it says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son... In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. So, this is a powerful concept here. <clears throat> Let's 
I like to diagram things out here. So here we have the law, and we have the flesh. And the law is unable to help us because the flesh is weak. What the law does is it points out sin, and with our flesh, and we, if you remember from Romans 3, it talks about how there's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are become unprofitable. That's the flesh. None seeking after God, going away from God, turning away from Him. And that's because the flesh is weak. And so then right after that litany of verses in Romans 3, then it says all the world is guilty before God in the judgment. So the law points out because we choose to sin and our flesh, which is weak, drives us in the direction to choose to not serve God, all the law can do is say, you're under condemnation. And our flesh doesn't help us keep the law because it's weak. So when Paul says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, so the law can't help us because the flesh is weak, that's what Paul is saying, so we need help then. Where's the help going to come from? Then Paul says, God sending his own son. So here's where the help comes from. Comes from the son. God sending his own son. How is he going to help us? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So we are helped because the Son was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he goes on to say, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So in our flesh, because we've sinned, sin has power over us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, the law condemns us. And therefore, sin, for those who do not have Christ, who have not been forgiven, sin condemns us. Sin has dominion over us. Because once we sin, we're guilty in the judgment and we are deserving of condemnation. And so we're in a hopeless condition. Sin, then, is our master. But what happened when Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh? So he condemned sin in the flesh. So what Jesus did, whatever it was, he condemned sin in the flesh, which means that if he condemned sin in the flesh, that means sin no longer has power over the flesh. Because Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. And Paul makes that point very clear as he goes on. So he condemned sin in the flesh for what reason? That the righteousness of the law, hey, remember the law it can't help us because our flesh is weak. Now the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled. Now, where does Paul say the righteousness of the law is fulfilled? Is it fulfilled in Christ? Is it fulfilled outside of us? 
in place of us somewhere else? No, Paul says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. So now, the righteousness of the law is being fulfilled not only in Christ, but in us. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now, let's be very clear here. If the righteousness of the law is being fulfilled in us, what happened? Self died, or the old man was crucified in Romans 6, that the body of sin might be destroyed. So we were crucified with Christ. And so we have the experience of Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So now... Christ is living in us, and Christ, we know, when he lived here on this earth, never sinned. So Christ kept the righteousness of the law 100% of the time. I think everyone would agree with that, right? I mean, John 14, 30 says, The prince of this world cometh and find nothing in Christ. He couldn't find anything. Christ kept the law 100% of the time, and we see in Romans 7, verse 12, that the commandment is holy, the law and the commandment is holy, just, and good. And that describes everything about Jesus Christ. He's holy, just, and good. So now, his righteous life, or the righteousness of the law, is being fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Which is the same concept that we talked about in Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And in Romans 8, 4, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So notice this. In Romans 8, 1, when we are in Christ, we walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And in Romans 8, 4, when... The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. We walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Do you see the same thing here? So in Romans 8, verse 1, we are in Christ. When we are in Christ, we walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Romans 8, 4, when the righteousness of Christ is fulfilled in us, that means Christ is in us, we walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So that means Christ is in us. So it goes back to this concept that we talked about in John 17. If we are in Christ, that means Christ is in us. Just as the Father was in the Son and the Son was in the Father, if we are in Christ, then Christ is in us. And when we are in Christ and when Christ is in us, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. Or Christ's righteous life is fulfilled in us. And what did Paul say in Romans 8, verse 1? He says, there is no condemnation. So if there is no condemnation, what does that mean about your salvation experience? It means you're justified. Because if you're not justified, you're under condemnation. But if, the, if you have no condemnation, 
that means you're justified. And what does it mean to be no longer under condemnation? It means that you're in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? It means to walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And what else, how else does Paul describe that same experience? He describes that Christ's righteousness is fulfilled in us, which means Christ is living in us. So what does it mean to be justified? It means for Christ to be in you. So to be justified is more than to have the righteousness of Christ outside of you. It means to have the righteousness of Christ inside of you. And sure, you'll have the righteousness outside of you. But too many times Christians say, well, I'm covered with his righteousness, but I have the Romans 7 experience. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. Oh, well, I guess I'm wretched. And Jesus says, yes, you are, and you're also naked, and you're not covered. So it's clear. Now, let's talk a little bit about Jesus coming in the likeness of sinful flesh. <clears throat> this is a loaded topic, I realize that, but it's in the Bible, so we're going to talk about it. Because this is the reason why we are able to have the righteousness of Christ fulfilled in us. It's the reason why we're able to have justification by faith. If we don't have this experience, we don't have justification by faith. So let's break down the likeness of sinful flesh. <clears throat> In verse 3, we see that the flesh is weak. Now, the flesh, some could argue, is just flesh and bones. But yet, in Romans seven eighteen, Paul says... For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So here's the experience of the flesh. I want to do what's right, but I don't have the power to do it. Does that sound like a physical experience only or a mental experience? It's describing a mental experience. So Jesus then came in the likeness of sinful flesh with an understanding of having a fallen human mind that has no power of its own to, to do what it wants to do. And it's interesting in John chapter 5, Jesus says, I can of mine own self do nothing. We'll, we'll get there. We're, we're, we're just building up to what the righteousness of Christ is, so we're going to get there. So Christ, of course, in the book of Luke, is described as being born of the Holy Spirit. He's described as that holy thing. And he, of course, was born of a woman who had a fallen human nature, and of course, his, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So, and then when you study Hebrews 2, we see that Jesus was made in all things like his brethren. We've studied in our Hebrews class that his brethren are those who are sanctified. They have a sanctified will, um, and so forth. When Paul says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, the word likeness comes from the Greek word that could mean either the same as or similar to. And of course, the great debate in the nature of Christ, the theologians who believe that Jesus had a prelapsarian, which means pre-fall nature, they believe that the word likeness clearly shows that there was a difference. And the people who 
take the post-lapsarian or post-fall view, say, no, this shows that he had the same nature. And the question that you have to ask is, what was Paul emphasizing here? Was Paul emphasizing the difference of Jesus between Jesus and us? Or was he emphasizing the similarity between Jesus and us? It's got to be the similarity because what he's saying is, is that the experience that Christ had can be fulfilled in us as well. So the emphasis is similarity, 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 not the big difference. And yet theologians will use this verse to magnify, oh, there's a big difference between Christ and us. Now, let's just point out a couple of other verses. In Philippians 2, 5, or actually not in verse 5, um, in verse 7, but in verse 5 it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So we're called to have the same mind that Christ had. And then in verse 7 it says, Jesus was made in the likeness of men. Same word, likeness. So Jesus was either the same as men or similar to men. And again, the emphasis is on the similarity, not the difference. And if you wonder, well, was... Was Paul saying, well, Jesus was kind of like a man, but he really wasn't a man. He was just kind of made in the likeness of men. Um, the Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Verse 3, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. So John is saying, look, if you say that Jesus really wasn't a man, then you are of the spirit of Antichrist, because this goes against what Christ was trying to accomplish for his people here on this earth. He came in the flesh. And the Greek word for flesh here is sarx, which includes mind and body, not just body. And so John is saying, hey, if you say that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, and this was from a first century argument in the Christian church, you are of Antichrist. And the people in the first century tried to use Philippians 2.7 to say, well, he was made in the likeness of men, but he wasn't really a man. And the same author Paul in Romans 8 says, likeness of sinful flesh. Paul, what he is trying to do here is he is trying to emphasize the similarity of Jesus with fallen humanity. That Jesus was like us, and showed that it is possible to live a victorious life in our fallen nature. And because he did that, the he condemned sin in the flesh, which means sin no longer has power over our flesh or over our fallen nature. And now the righteousness of Christ can be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now I'm going to read just a couple of quotes from Ellen White to drive home this point. This is from Faith I Live By, page 23. <clears throat> the Savior took upon himself the infirmities of humanity and lived a sinless life that men might have no fear that because of the weakness of human nature they could not overcome. 
So you see this? Jesus took upon himself human nature so that we could have faith to know that we can overcome. And then she goes on to say, The prince of this world cometh, said Jesus, and hath nothing in me. John 14, 30. There was in him nothing that responded to Satan's sophistry. He did not consent to sin. Not even by a thought did he yield to temptation. And then we say, well, that's not the way it is in my life. And yet Ellen White says, so it may be with us. So what may it be with us? Nothing that responds to Satan's sophistry, not consenting to sin, and not even by a thought yielding to temptation. Notice, not by a thought. So it may be with us. And she goes on to say, um, in the next paragraph, she says, we need not retain one sinful propensity. And it's interesting, when you get to Great Controversy, page 623, she quotes the same idea, but now she's talking about God's people living in the time of trouble. She goes on, here she says again, um, Christ declared of himself, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, John 14, 30. Satan could find nothing in the Son of God that would enable him to gain the victory. He had kept his father's commandments, and there was no sin in him that Satan could use to his advantage. And then notice what she says. This is the condition in which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. So, in Faith I Live By, page 23, she says, The experience of Christ, so it may be with us. Great controversy, she says, This is how we are to be in the time of trouble. So the way Jesus lived, so it may be with us. And that's the way we are to be in the time of trouble. So I've actually read theologians who quote those passages to say, see, Jesus had a different nature than us. And actually she's saying, just as Jesus lived, so can we. So, so that's important to understand. And then the one last, well, actually, yeah, I'll mention this. This is Desire of Ages, page Pages 122-123, she says, In our own strength it is impossible for us to deny the clamors of our fallen nature. Through this channel Satan will bring temptation upon us. Christ knew that the enemy would come to every human being to take advantage of hereditary weakness and by his false insinuations to ensnare all whose trust is not in God. And then notice this. So in our own strength we can't deny the clamors of our fallen nature. We have hereditary weakness. Christ knew that the enemy would try to take advantage of this. But notice what happens. Christ, by passing over the ground which man must travel, has prepared the way for us to overcome. So, because Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, what does that mean? It means that he passed over the same ground that I pass over. That means that I can overcome the way he overcame. That means the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, who live the way Christ lived. Now, <clears throat> one other verse that I'm going to read to point this out is 1 Peter 4, verse 1. 1 Peter 4, verse 1 says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. So notice this, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. What are we to do? Arm ourselves likewise with the same mind. Remember the verse that said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus? So how did Christ suffer in the flesh? It was in the mind where he was tempted. 
So to say that Jesus was only tempted physically to be hungry or thirsty or tired, which some theologians say, goes against these clear Bible verses that say, look, Christ suffered in the flesh. How did he suffer? In the mind. And because he overcame, we can. We suffer in the flesh, we cease to sin. Christ never sinned. So the struggle is in the mind. Now, <clears throat> obviously time has gotten away from me, but let's try to wrap up a few ideas here. We've only done the first four verses. It's going to take us forever to get through this chapter. <clears throat> so, so, when we look at these first four verses, what we see is there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means to walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. What does that also mean? It means that just as we are in Christ, Christ is in us in the same way that the Father was in Christ, and Christ is in the Father, and how He prayed that we may be in the Father and the Son. So to no longer be under condemnation means that Christ has come into us, and we have come in to Christ. And this is made possible because Christ came in the weakness of our sinful flesh and showed how to live a victorious life. So he condemned the power of sin in our weak flesh, and now his righteousness can be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Now, this is where I'm going to finish up because it all ties together. <clears throat> being in Christ and Christ being in us means that we are no longer under condemnation, which means that we are justified. So in order to be justified, we must be in Christ, and Christ must be in us. And if we go back to our familiar passages of Galatians 2, 16 to 20, this same idea is brought out, and this is where we will wrap up, and I'll <clears throat> erase some of this so we can diagram this out. In Galatians 2.16, it's interesting. <clears throat> this connects justification to no longer being under condemnation. In Galatians 2.16, Paul says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but how? But by the faith of Jesus Christ. And the Greek is clear. It's the faith of Jesus Christ, not faith in Jesus Christ. And most modern translations mistranslate that passage. But we are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. So when we're justified in Galatians 2.16, we're justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. And then when we get to Galatians 2.20, it says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Hey, does that sound familiar? Those who are in Christ Jesus, Christ is in them. So when I'm crucified with Christ... I no longer live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That means I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. As the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father. So I'm crucified, Christ is in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, what, how do I live it by? By the faith of the Son of God. That's the faith of Jesus. It's not faith in the Son of God. It's the faith of the Son of God, which is the faith of Jesus. That means 
when I'm crucified, I am also justified. That means that to be justified means I have the faith of Jesus. It also means that Christ is living in me. So if Christ is living in me, I am crucified. And if I'm crucified, I am also justified because when I'm justified, I'm justified by the faith of Christ. And when I'm crucified, I'm crucified by the faith of Jesus. Or I live by the faith of Jesus Christ. So to be justified means to be crucified. Christ lives in me which means I'm crucified, which means I'm justified. And we also see that we are no longer under condemnation when we are in Christ Jesus because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. How do we know that? Because we are walking not after the flesh but after the spirit in verse 1. And, and that connects to verse 4 that says the righteousness of, the, of Christ is fulfilled in us. So if the righteousness of Christ is fulfilled in us, that means we're crucified, which means we're justified, and it means we're no longer under condemnation. Sorry, I, I guess I go fast. but Let's say this one more time, because I want you to understand this. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, which also means to walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. In Romans 8 4, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us, that means Christ is living in us. And, and that's verse 4. In verse 1, when we are in Christ, we walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That means we are no longer under condemnation. And in Galatians, we clearly see that when we are crucified, Christ lives in us. And we live by the faith of Jesus. When we are justified, we're justified by the faith of Jesus. So that means when we're justified, we're also crucified, which means Christ lives in us. That only makes sense because if Christ is in us, we're exercising his faith instead of our own. And if he is in us, that means his righteousness is being fulfilled in us because we're walking not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And in verse 1, those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit are in Christ and are no longer under condemnation. So the only reasonable conclusion I can come to then when I come to Romans 8 is the only way to be justified is to be in Christ and to walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And to have Christ living in me so that I can walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So that his righteousness can be fulfilled in me. Now what's the significance of this? The significance of this is this. This means we have the faith of Jesus Christ. And that is the third angel's message. And Ellen White says that the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity. And the third angel's message is not, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do, but praise the Lord, I'm justified, and that's the third angel's message. That is a powerless third angel. 
the power of the third angel is, here is a group of people justified by the faith of Jesus Christ, which means they're crucified with Christ. Christ lives in them. They live by the faith of Jesus, which means now they're no longer under condemnation. They walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in them. The righteousness of the law, which is Christ being fulfilled in us, and we talk about this a lot, it connects is the same thing as the mystery of God being finished in the Second Advent movement, which God raised us up to fulfill. So, as we study Romans, and we're going to continue the study next week, what we see is this. <clears throat> the third angel's message is the message of justification by faith, which describes a group of people who live by the faith of Jesus, who are crucified with Christ, who are in Christ, Christ is in them, and they are now dead to sin, alive in Christ, and they are no longer walking after the flesh, which is the experience of Romans 7, of not doing the things that you want to do and, and doing the things you don't want to do, being carnal, being sold under sin, being a slave to sin, being a servant to sin. Instead of having that experience, we don't walk after the flesh anymore. We walk after the Spirit. And that is made possible by the faith of Jesus Christ because He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. So if you wonder why the nature of Christ has become such a divisive subject in our church, it's because the devil knows that the nature of Christ, the humanity of Christ, makes it helps us to clearly understand how we can have a victorious life in Christ and experience the third angel's message so that Jesus can come back. Third angel's message, here's the patience of the saints, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. How can I have the faith of Jesus if he lived off in a different world not understanding the temptations that I went through? But if he came in the same nature that I live in and understand what I go through, then I can have faith that I can have the same experience. And in fact, when I give my life to him, when I'm crucified with Christ, he comes in and gives me his faith. And that's righteousness by faith. So we'll continue Romans 8 next week. We'll talk about how to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace and all of that. We'll get through more than four verses next week, I promise. Um, but praise the Lord for the message of Romans.